You are listening to sermons from the Ignite Leadership Conference 08. Ignite is a gathering for young leaders purposed for kingdom building and lasting conversations to take place. For more information, visit www.igniteleadership.org. Session 1, Spark, Identifying Your Leadership Potential, featuring Scott Cornelius from Willow Creek Community Church in South Barrington, Illinois. Father, you're just uh, so good to us. Thank you for your kindness. and Just thank you for the, the people in this room, God, that just desire you so much that they're going to take time out of their busy lives to come spend a weekend in Chandler, Oklahoma, just solely so they can get closer to you and help the people they know get closer to you as well. I just thank you for that. God, I just pray that that you just bless our weekend. Just bless this time together. Just help us have the conversations that we need to have. Just just guide those. God, just guide this night, God. We just give this whole weekend to you. We love you and we thank you for everything. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I get the opportunity tonight to get to talk about identifying your leadership potential. And when I read that phrase, identifying your leadership potential, I can't help but to kind of get stuck on that last word, that, that word potential. Um, uh, Webster describes potential as this way, capable of development into actuality. Now, potential, the word potential is why, as a sports fan, I love to watch the NFL and NBA draft, all right? Does anybody else like to watch the draft? Give a few of you, I mean, I love it. I'm like, NFL draft, I am all over it all day, NBA, NBA draft. Love it. Huge, huge fan. I mean, I am a Celtics fan, so the only thing that I've had to look forward to for the past 15 years is the NBA draft. Because every time the draft came around, it was like, finally, I have some hope, you know? Because we were always, like, drafting one of the top five picks for, like, 15 straight years. And so every time I thought, I just kind of had that glimmer of hope that maybe, just maybe, you know, this next guy we draft you know, it was the next Michael Jordan. I mean, every year I thought, you know, maybe, just maybe. So we'd go to the draft, and we would, we would draft a guy, and then the season would come around, and a month into the season, I would realize that we suck again, and we're going to be back in the draft, you know, early in the draft again, and, uh, and then I would be upset again. And it's kind of like this, this weird cycle of, like, I'd be hopeful, like, oh my gosh, the draft is coming, we, we're going to draft this great guy. The season would come around, I'd realize that no, he's not what we thought we were. And then it was like utter despair. Then this cycle again, oh, I'm hopeful, things are great. No, we're really, really bad. Utter despair again. Because with potential, it kind of, it, it gives bright, this, this idea of bright hope, but it can also bring utter despair. And the reason it can bring utter despair is because I don't think there is anything more sad to witness than unrealized potential. I mean, it is so sad to watch unrealized potential, and I should know because I'm a Celtics fan, right? And I've had to live through it. Let me just kind of just briefly give you some of the pain that I've had to experience as a Celtics fan. Um, first, I had to live through the Lynn Bias tragedy. Anybody know who Lynn Bias is? A few of you do. Um, it was supposed to be like the next great basketball player, but unfortunately the Celtics drafted the number two pick overall, cocaine overdose, Never makes it to the team. I mean, unbelievably sad. Now, let me just give you a few picks here. 1993, we're horrible. We draft a guy by the name of A.C. Earl. Anybody ever heard of him? Of course you have him, because he's horrible. He never made it. A.C. Earl, he played for Iowa, and that was loud, and he, and he never made it. Okay, that's 1993. Okay, he was supposed to be, by the way, A.C. Earl was supposed to be the next Carl Malone. 
All right, he's now the only AC Earl. Okay, 1994. Next guy, a guy named by the name of Eric Montross we draft, right? He lasted in the league like two years. I mean, when we drafted him, I kid you not, I am like high-fiving my buddies. We've got the next great center. He was the next great nothing. I mean, really, really bad. Okay, 2001, right? Now, you think we had three picks in the first round. You think, I mean, right, you have three chances to get it right, that you're going to at least get one guy that is really, really good, right? Let me just, here's who we drafted, okay? We drafted a guy with a 10th pick by the name of Kedrick Brown. You ever heard of him? Of course not. He didn't last in the league, right? Horrible. Then we drafted a guy by the name of Joseph Forte. Exactly. Yeah, that's cute, right? Yeah, no, no one, no, horrible. Didn't even make it, right? Now, here's the deal. With our third pick, we drafted a guy by the name of Joe Johnson. All right? Great. All-star player, right? Great. He's on the Olympic team. But what did we do? We traded him the very first year we had him. So the only guy that we ever drafted, like in the last 10 years that made it, we trade him. We get rid of him. So listen, as, as a Celtics fan, I have had to deal with this idea of hope and this idea of utter despair. Because I'm telling you, I have seen a lot of unrealized potential. And that is a sad, sad thing to watch. So just briefly, here's what I want us to do. We're just going to kind of look um, at some of the biggest busts of all time, okay? And, and why were they busts? Why... Did they not make it? Okay, I'm going to throw a name at you, and I'm sure you've heard of him. I think maybe the biggest bust of all time in sports is a guy by the name of Ryan Leaf. Have you heard of Ryan Leaf? All right, here's his college kind of highlights. Um, he was a finalist for the Heisman, all right? Ryan Leaf was a first-team All-American. He threw his junior year 330 yards a game for 33 touchdowns. At that time, that was a Pac-10 record. Big-time guy. He was the second pick in the NFL draft, okay? All the potential in the world. 6'5", big guy, strong arm. Okay, here's his NFL highlights. 21 touchdowns, or 21 starts, 14 touchdowns, 36 interceptions. He washed out of the league in like four or five years, right? He had all the potential in the world, all the physical tools in the world. I mean, this guy should have made it, okay? Why was he a bust? Why did Ryan Leaf not make it? Um, pretty simply, I think he just did not have what it took upstairs, all right? He had all the physical makings to be a superstar quarterback. He just didn't have it upstairs. In fact, he was a big head. He had the big head. He was, he was arrogant. He was conceited. Here's a quote that Ryan Leaf said right when he gets drafted, okay? He gets drafted by San Diego, and here's what he says. He goes, I'm looking forward to a 15-year career, a couple of trips to the Super Bowl, and a parade through downtown San Diego. Here's his problem. He knew he had past success. And that's all he thought about. He thought that his past success would immediately parlay into future success. He thought, you know, everything in the past has been so easy for me, and I've, everywhere I've gone, I've succeeded. I've always done it. It's just, it's just, it's going to happen here. But here's the problem. He stepped up another level. And every time in our leadership, every time that we step up to this next thing, it gets a little bit harder. Like, my leadership challenges that I'm experiencing now are so much more difficult than they were even a year ago. Because every time you kind of make a step things get harder. And he just decided, you know what? I've got what it takes. I'm done learning. We can't stop learning. That's why like things like this are just so utterly important. We have to always learn and just keep trying to strive. And we can't just kind of rest on our past success. And I got to be honest, the guy that, that kind of demonstrates this idea of learning, it, it, the, the best that I've ever been around is Casey Character. This guy is a constant, listen, I kid you not, how many emails do we get a week from Casey of some leadership 
sermon or leadership talk he got on emails. Boom. Hey guys, I read this this morning at 7.52. What do you think? I mean, two minutes later, send me another one. I read this at 8.54. This is another sermon. You know, 9.15, I get another email from Casey. Hey, I heard this, you know, podcast, da, da, da. I can't tell you how many emails I get from, I mean, I'm just going to block him. I mean, I get so many. I mean, he sends them all the time. Why? Casey is very successful, but he knows that, you know what, I'm next, it's going to be harder. Things are going to get tougher. I have more, God's given me more responsibility. Things are going to get tougher. I can't stop. Casey demonstrates that the absolute best. He never has a big head. He just moves on. Um, the other thing I think Ryan Leaf was a boss is because he had a hot head. He had a temper. He didn't know how to control it. If you kind of, I did some research on it, but he got in fights with his teammates all the time. There was this famous clip. He would get in a fight with reporters. He would just go nuts. You've probably seen it. But he was a hot head. He didn't know when to fight. And he didn't know when to, to kind of slow down. And the sad thing about this is I think one of the things that, you know, gave him this great potential was this, his temper, was his passion. He just didn't know how to control it. He didn't know when to fight and when not to fight. And we got we to kind of learn to do that. We'll talk about that a little bit more later. Um, okay, I think maybe Ryan Leaf was number one bust of all time, but um, unrealized potential. But I think number two is a guy, and this is kind of a sad story, but have you ever heard of a guy named, by the name of Sam Bowie? All right? Very, very sad story. I know Hickerson has, Kentucky guy, right? Um, very, very sad story. Um, here's his college highlights. One, come out of high school, he was a McDonald's All-American, big-time guy, seven-foot guy. Uh, in college, great player, big-time great player in college, right? And then he, but he had a leg injury in college. He got hurt, right? Bad deal, bum deal. He got hurt. Uh, but still, he was great, great, ended up having a great college career. And uh, he gets drafted in the 1984 NBA draft. He gets drafted number two by a team called the Portland Trailblazers, all right? Now, the problem with that is, who got drafted number three that year? A guy by the name of Michael Jordan, right? I mean, so, like, it didn't matter what Sam Bowie ever did. I mean, he got drafted. He was the guy picked in front of Michael Jordan. Well, here's the problem with Sam Bowie, right? Not really his fault. He was a bust because of injuries. The guy got injured all the time. Um, in fact, I think, here it is. He was the second pick overall. He played in a total of five seasons, 63 games. In like, in like a four or five year span. The guy just never got a chance to get out there. So he got injured, and that is a major reason for his bust. Now here's another guy I want to share that ended up being a bust and ended up being, didn't really realize his potential. But um, it's not a guy you've ever heard of. Um, he was not a big professional athlete or anything. But it's a guy by the name of Jason Blackwell. It's a guy that I went to high school with. And uh, named Jason, and he was a great athlete, all-state football player, all-state baseball player. I mean, absolutely just one of the best, just natural athletes I've, I've ever been around. But he was, his best sport was football. He's a receiver. And a um, great receiver. And uh, he ended up getting some scholarship offers. He was a smart guy, too. And, and not like big-time stuff like, you know, OU or USC and stuff like that. But just kind of like schools like Iowa State, you know, like Northwestern, Rice, TCU. Well, he narrowed his choices down to Rice University and Northwestern University in, in Chicago, okay? Now, let me just tell you, he's a wide receiver, okay? Now, if a, a wide receiver likes to catch passes, correct? Well, he's narrowed his choices down to Rice and Northwestern, okay? Now, here's, here's the deal. He's a wide receiver. Rice, at the time, ran an offense called the option, all right? Meaning they ran the football every down. That's what they did. They, receivers were blockers. Receivers never went out on passes. I mean, they might catch two passes a year. So Jason has that option. He has another option of Northwestern. 
At the time, they had just started this new offense called the spread, where they would use five wide receivers. I mean, like, I mean, their whole offense was centered around the receiver and, and, and all of that. Well, my friend Jason, a very smart guy, who does he choose? He chooses rice. He chooses to go to the school that would never utilize his talents. And he went there, and he started, and he, and he played four years, and no one ever heard of him. You don't know who he is, you know, ever. J- fine career, fine everything, but Jason never got a chance to reach his potential because he played in the wrong system. He was in a system that did not match his strengths. So he just never, ever made it. Um, all of these guys had potential, but for different reasons, they never realized their potential. They never reached their potential. And I, and I, I think, I, I really believe that there's nothing worse to witness than unrealized potential. Um, now, recently, and if you have your Bibles, you're going to turn here. I've been reading a lot in Second um, Timothy. Actually, I've been reading kind of both letters that Paul wrote to Timothy. First Timothy and Second Timothy. But I've been hanging out a lot lately in Second Timothy. And so go to Second um, Timothy chapter 4. And as you're going there, you know, Paul, at this point, when he's writing this letter to Timothy, he's in prison. And, uh, and he's been in prison before. But at this time, while, while Paul's in prison, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty bad. Paul knows that this is most likely it. Um, I'm not going to make it out here. Um, I, I'm pretty much, this is, you know, this is going to be it for me. And, and Paul is trying to prepare to kind of pass this leadership torch on to Timothy. And so Timothy you have, we have a guy here who, who Paul sees a lot of potential in Timothy. He says, all right, Timothy, you're the guy. You're the guy that I'm going to pass this thing to. I see a lot of potential in you. I, I, I think you're the guy. And, 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 and you know what, Timothy, I love and care for you so much that I don't want you to not reach your God-given potential. I want to see it realized in you. And, and not just because, you know, I care about you and I love you, but there is so much on the line. It, 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 there's so much, you, we can't risk you not reaching your potential. We can't risk it. There is too much on the line. You have to. So, Timothy, you need to take this very seriously, and I'm going to give you some very, very good advice, okay? And so we're going to take a glimpse here at some of the advice that, that Paul gave Timothy. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Paul starts off this way. He says, I give you this charge. First, I just love how that starts. I mean, I can imagine Paul as a coach, you know, gathering, you know, Timothy around before a game and just saying, Timothy, here we go. It is game time. I'm passing the torch. Here is my charge. I am giving you this charge. He says, preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Now here he kind of sums everything up in this last thing. He says, but you, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. I'm going to say that again. He says, but you, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. And Paul's last words to Timothy, he's saying, he's saying, Timothy, keep your head. Timothy, endure hardship. It's going to come. Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. Very, very clear. And I think if, if we want to reach our God-given potential, if we went to in this room, we need to take Paul's advice. 
and we need to do that. And the first thing that Paul tells Timothy is keep your head. Unlike Mr. Ryan Leaf, we need to keep our head in all situations. Uh, we can't be a hot head and just fly off the handle, you know, all the time. We can't, uh, we can't just kind of rest on our success in the past. We have to be learners. We have to do that. You know, but I, I love him kind of saying, he knew that Timothy was going to have some tough leadership battles to, to face. And he says, Timothy, in, these, in this stressful time, in this turbulent times that you're about to face, it is very important that you keep your head. That you keep your, there's going to be times that you need to fight. And there are going to be times that you need not to fight. There are going to be times when you just have to let things go. And there are going to be times when you need to really get after it. Um, I learned this lesson very early in my ministry time. When I, my, my first job at, in college and out of college working at a church was at Kingsview Church in Oklahoma City. And um, we had a, a great pastor there, a great guy. I learned so much under him. I, you, have, you have no idea. Um, and we were going through a tough time as a church. And he was going through a tough time as a pastor. And... Um, Tough times, you know, really just, just difficult. And I showed up for church one day, and I was, I was a children's pastor and going to children's church and really excited him. And, uh, and I knew he'd been having a tough time, my pastor. I knew he'd been struggling, and just really me, him, and another guy on staff. And he walks in one day and um, resigns. He pulls me in five minutes before church was about to start, pulls me in his office, just crying, and says, Scott, um, I'm hanging it up. Uh, I'm turning it in. Uh, I'm done. And, um, and I'm kind of, you know, I don't know, I think I'm 22 at the time. You know, like, uh, so does that mean now? Or like two months from now, we're going to, he's like, no, I'm, I'm now, I'm done. Service starts, he goes in, you know, he resigns and he leaves. Now this is a man I love, this is a man I respected, and so I had a lot of loyalty to him. Well, a lot of the problems in church, some people just didn't like him. And some of the things we were doing, right? So he leaves, and guess who's in charge? Yes, right? 22-year-old punk kid who knows nothing. And uh, I had to preach. I remember uh, to a bunch of people that I, that I didn't like. Because they ran my friend off. And I wanted to say a lot of things to them. I want to let him have it. And I got to tell you, um, I have a temper. And it, it, it can fly off the handle. But I'm very young. I was like, God, um, I got to preach. I got to stand in front of these people and represent you the best way I can. And I, can I be honest with you, God? I don't like them. In fact, I wish they'd leave. But I know next week they're going to be here. And I wanted to tell them off. And I got to be honest with you. I'm, I mean, listen, I'm, I mean, I still am, but I've, I got a lot of issues with pride and just ego. And, uh, and I knew it. And I was really scared it was going to come out. And, um, but for whatever reason, during that time, God just really protected me. And there were times in that, in that next three to four months where he said, Scott, let that go. Let it go. Just, that's okay. And there were times in that three or four months where Scott said, God, take a, Scott, take up for yourself. That's not right. You need to get into that. And I, I, got into, I got into it when I needed to, and I didn't always get it right. But there were times I stood up for myself, and I stood up for the church, and, and I got into I just really got into it. And other times I let things go. But it was during that time where I just felt God very clear. I said, Scott, there, just keep your head. 
sometimes you need to fight and take up for yourself and take up for the church. And sometimes you need to say, this is, this, is, this is what's right, and I'm standing here. And not be pushed around. You need to do that. But the rest also at times, you just kind of, you know what? That's not a battle. I'm worth, you know, it's really worth fighting. And that's, I think kind of that's what, what Paul's telling Timothy. or saying, listen, you're going to have to keep your head. You're young. You're going to be leading a lot of people that are older than you. Right? Pick your battles. Just keep your head. Do, just be wise. Be wise, you know, and all above your years. And, and we've got to do that. If we're going to reach our potential, we have to learn to keep our head. Just keep our head. Uh, you know, the second thing, that, what, what does Paul tell Timothy? He says, endure hardship. He says, endure hardship. He doesn't say, you know, hey, there's a chance that you may have to endure hardship. Like, there's maybe just a chance that, that in your ministry something, you know, some hardships might come your way. He says, no. He says, endure. It's going to happen. You're going to have hardships. Right? You're going to have injuries. You know, we may not have physical injuries like Sam Bowie, but we are going to get spiritually injured in our ministry. We just are. Because what do we do? We lead people that are far from God, kind of close to God. We lead all, I mean, what, that's what we do. We deal with people, and people are imperfect. We're all imperfect. And so they're going to hurt us. Our bosses are going to hurt us. Our pastors are going to hurt us. And I just got to tell you early on, like, we can't be so shocked when our senior pastor hurts us because they're imperfect. And it's going to happen. And so early on, we just got to get to our head, you know what? I'm just going to have to endure hardship. Maybe some battles you need to fight, and you may need to put a stake in the ground and say, this is it, you know, and leave. But there may be some times you say, you know what? I need to stick this through, and I need to, you know, endure some hardship. And I went, you know, I went to a Bible college, guys. I went to Mid-America Bible College. And I can't tell you how many guys that I went to school with that were ministry majors and either A, by the time college was over, never ever got into ministry, and, or they went to ministry and they were there for a year, and they're out. Now, I think sometimes, you know, that's fine. Maybe God calls people to do other things. But I really think a lot of those guys, and I specifically think of a friend of mine who was so called to ministry. He was great, so gifted, had so much potential. And now he's just far from the church, and, 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 and so... He'll never get back in full-time ministry unless it's a miracle, and I hope. But he, he should have. But you know what? Early on, he let a little bit of hardships turn him away from doing ministry. And for him, it was financial hardships. I think that really just kind of just stuck with him. And you know what? Let's be honest. If you're going to the ministry, you're not going to make a lot of money, right? Big shocker there. I mean, you know, God takes care of us. Just early on, you know, you're gonna don't you're gonna have hardships. Just don't give up. Just keep going. I mean, honestly, it's it's so sad to see someone with so much potential just walk away because of hardship. So don't don't give up. Keep going. Stay. Uh, the last thing that, that that Paul said to Timothy was he said very clearly he said he goes do the work of an evangelist. So what what is Paul saying? I, I think Paul said to Timothy he says do what you're supposed to do. He says, here's the deal. Timothy, you're a great evangelist. You're good at that. You're great at it. Do what you are great at. Do what you're really, and give everything else away. He says, discharge all the other parts of your ministry. This is what you're good at, man. Like, you're, you're the best at this. You need to do this. And so, you know, my, my thing for us is, is the things that we're really good at, we need to do that. Like, what are you best at? That's what you need to spend your time doing. 
What are you just, I mean, what are you just uniquely gifted in? That's what, that's what you have to do. And really, I think of my friend Jason, like, he was a uniquely gifted receiver. He was uniquely gifted at that. But he kind of, I guess, didn't really see it. So he goes to a school where he doesn't get to use that gift. And it frustrates me. He never reached his potential. Well, see, for us, if we don't do what we are uniquely gifted to do, if we put ourselves in the wrong system, if we're really good at A, but we're in a system, we're in a, we're in a church and a job that only lets us do B, then we're never going to reach our potential because A is never getting used. And so we have to do what we are uniquely gifted at. And I'll just be honest with you, this is something that I am, just on a personal level, really wrestling through right now and really trying to figure out in my own life. Like, all right, God, what is my best play for the kingdom? Like, really, what, what, what am I just, what's the best thing I can do? Because I don't want to be in the wrong system, just playing in a system and just kind of getting along and, and going along fine. I want to be in a system that fits me the best so I can make my best play for the kingdom. But in order for me to really figure that out, I have to identify, just identify, what, what am I really good at? What are my strengths? Like, what type of leader am I? Like, what is it? What, what, what makes me tick? What can I do better than other people? Right? I got to figure that out. And so I think that's kind of the hard part, though, is, is a lot of us, we, we may not reach our potential because we don't really know what we're good at. And so we just go through life being in these wrong systems and just living in an environment that doesn't really fit. And we never reach our potential, but it's because we just, we don't know. Like, I don't, we don't know what our, our best top strengths are or how we lead. And so this is what I want us to do. This, this last part here, I just want us to identify the, what type of leader we are. What type of, you know, what are your strengths? You know, what is that? But specifically, we're going to focus on leadership. And I just, I just want us to find out, okay, how can we identify what type of, you know, leader we are? And so there's a few things I think we should do. And, and one is we need to use available resources. There are a lot of great resources out there that will help us kind of identify our strengths, identify what type of leader we are, so that will help us, you know, lead our people more effectively. There's a lot of stuff out there, and we just got to use them. One is a great book. It's just uh, Discovering Your Strengths by Marcus Buckingham. And Jeff may have put that in the, okay, your resource thing. It's at the front. Um, But it's a great book to kind of help you figure out what are your strengths. Okay, not only, okay, now I know what they are. How can I apply my strengths to my job? It's a great it's a great resource, so I would check that out. Um, another uh, resource is uh, it's a book called Courageous Leadership by Bill Hybels. I mean, great book, great book on leadership. Um, and in the book, it talks about there are 11 types of leaders, and he kind of goes through that, all right? And so this is what I want us to do today. I have a friend of mine that I work with that he put together um, a leadership assessment, and it's kind of like, I think it's going to be 50 questions, I'm not even really sure. But it's an assessment that goes along with this, with um, Bill Hybel's book, Courageous Leadership, and his 11 types of leaders. And so you take this assessment, and then it, it kind of helps you pinpoint, okay, what type of leader you are, all right? And so that's what I want us to do now, is um, we're going to take that assessment, okay? And so I have some stuff here, if someone can help me pass them out. Um, let's see, we'll save those for a second. Thanks. And then, yeah, we'll take some of these. And then... Can I have one? Thanks. Now, if you notice, when you, when you get the assessment, they're stapled kind of strangely. It's because I'm really bad on those copier machines and staple things, and so they're stapled kind of weird. So, lo siento. I know, Mexico missionary. That was for you. 
Um, so everybody kind of gets one. Does everybody have one right now? Everyone? 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 Thank you, Ray. Okay, so this is what we're going to do. going to take a minute to kind of to go through this test. I took it last week. I've taken, uh, I took it, I don't know, a couple weeks ago. It's going to take about 10 to 15 minutes. So, and you know, listen, a lot of you have taken kind of personality tests and, and things like that. So when you take this test, I'm telling you stuff you already know, but don't just, you, the first thought that pops in your head, answer it that way. Don't try to answer it in a way that you want to be. Just really just answer the question, boom, right when it comes through. And when we're done, and then when you're done with the test, there's a way to kind of tally your score. Go ahead and do that, and then find out your, your top two leadership styles. And we'll go over that when you're done. All right, take a few moments here. And um, Now, the, the, the thing you just kind of got passed out, the styles of leadership, we're going to go over each one. But um, entrepreneur, say that word for me, John, because I can't say it very well. Entrepreneurial. Uh, John pointed out, does any, did anyone come up as one of the, as that style of leadership? Entrepreneurial? Entre, okay, well, John pointed out that there's a, a typo on here, on the styles. If you look at it, it says potential pitfalls. Well, for that one, it has potential pitfalls for both, and no like positive characteristics. So if you have that style, sorry, you're in trouble. Um, but I, I actually messed up on the document, so I'll send you a new one if we get your emails. Okay, real quickly, here's what we're going to do. Um, the, just kind of shout out, what, what are some, someone just throw some out. What was your leadership style? Someone throw it out. I just want to hear some. What was yours? Shepherding, okay. What? Thanks for saying that word. Anybody else want to throw it out? Anyone? What was it? Directional. I think sin was directional. Very nice. Motivational. All right. Let's hear it. Give, give, give us some of it right now. Come on. Motivate. All right. Hey, here's, here, real quick, here's what we're going to do. Is, um, when, when I took this test and, and, and I kind of thought about it, I, I always, I've done it a couple times, but I come very strongly on team building and then... Um, like the visionary one, the vision casting, but I, I, it's always like this vision casting one and the, the motivational one together. But I think that I pro- so here's what I'm telling you. Sometimes you take a test, you can't take it at face value. I think you need to take the results from this test, go to people that you actually lead or you lead with and say, hey, does this sound right? Okay, we'll talk about that in a minute, but we need to do that. So for me, I think it's, every time I take it, it's always this vision thing. But I think I tend maybe to do more of this motivational thing. And so I'm going to do real quick. I'm just going to share with you guys um, a leadership challenge that I'm having right now. And knowing that my style is team building and well, I think probably more motivational in, in this instance. So knowing that my style is team building and motivational, just to kind of show you how, how I would handle it. Um, Okay, at my church right now, um, to say that we are going through a lot of change would probably be an understatement, okay? We're, we're just going through a lot right now. And, and to kind of give you a, a little bit of history here, just to kind of let you know where I'm at and why I'm doing the things that I am. Um, okay, I would say for a long time, our church 
did, um, this is a long time ago, way long ago, they, their small groups were called disciple-making small groups, okay? This is maybe 10, 15 years ago. And the sole purpose of a disciple-making small group would be, oh, it's just, that's very impressive, very good. Okay, yes, that's exactly right. All right, and so here's what they would do. I mean, they were, it was so, this was such a big deal, such a big thing at the church at the time. They would ask people to sign two-year contracts to be in a small group. You had to sign a two-year contract that you were committed to being in this small group, okay? And so that era went on at our church for a while, and eventually people thought, that is crazy. Like, sign, no one would, two-year contract? What? Like, you know, I don't even want to do that when I get married. You know what I mean? It's like, just nuts, okay? Like, that's a little much. So then they said, okay, man, it's a little crazy. And it was really strong on this disciple-making process. Very strong. Okay. Then they said, a little nuts. All right. Then another guy came in, okay? So this is what we're going to do. Some problems with that old structure. Major problems. Now we're going to do kind of community building small groups where that's going to be a, a major factor, okay? And so we're going to accomplish that by putting people in small groups by affinity, okay? So they, then they get the whole church and they divide it up, okay? And so we had a whole men's ministry, right? And inside of that men's ministry, we had men's groups, all kinds of different men's groups. And then not only men's groups, right, but men's groups divided by age. So you'd have men's groups ages 25 to 30, 30 to 35, 35 to 45, I mean, all the way up, right? All kinds, right? Just crazy. And then we had women's groups, women's ministry. We had singles ministry, but not just singles ministry. Singles, like young singles and old singles, okay? And I don't know what the age is, so that's really weird, right? So they had that. And then we had couples ministry, right? We had, I mean, everything, all this affinity-based stuff. So if you were to call the church, and this was up until probably four years ago, you would call the church and say, hey, I'd like to get connected. They would say, Okay, what do you want to get in? I, you're a man. Okay, you want to get in a men's group? Yes. And they would say, okay, you know, here's what I do. I, w- I want to get in a men's group of guys ages, you know, 25 to 26 that meet on Tuesday mornings at 7 o'clock and all drink their coffee black. That's what I want to do. And then we would say, well, okay, I have a men's group for you of men of ages 25 to 27 that meet on Wednesday mornings at 7 and they put sugar in their coffee. Is that okay with you? And they'd say, no, that's not what I want. I want exactly this, okay? And then we would try to just to make it happen. And so we developed all these ministries really just to kind of put people in these places they wanted. And so it became very consumeristic, right? This, it just did. I'm not, not necessarily, it wasn't a bad idea at the beginning, but it just kind of got bad, and we tried to do all these things. And so we split all these people up. We had all these silos of these different ministries and everything affinity-based. We call the church... You got into a community by your affinity. It didn't matter if you lived 45 minutes from everyone in your small group. And remember, the purpose of a small group is to build community. It didn't matter where you lived, whatever. It was all affinity-based. Okay? And then they said, okay, well, there are some holes in this. We want to change it. Right? Um, and, and also, like, in this whole affinity thing, right, in this old structure, they would have what was called a division leader. Okay? A division leader. Now, underneath a division leader, that was a staff person, say, a men's ministry division leader. Underneath this division leader, they would have, like, six what we would call coaches, okay? And so these would have coaches. Now, these coaches would, these are volunteers. These coaches would oversee, okay, small groups, all right? So this is how it went. In every ministry, you had men's ministry division leader, oversaw that. Women's ministry division leader, boom. Couples ministry division leader, boom. Everything was set up just that way. This night, very, this nice, very clean structure, okay? All very nice, all very good. And then they said, okay, there's some things wrong with that. Now, here's the problem. A lot of these people in the structure really like that. 
So when we were going to change it, we didn't just kind of slowly change it. We just said, okay, this is done, and now we're going to go to something new, okay? And so when we switched, we went to this thing called neighborhood ministry, meaning we weren't going to connect people anymore by affinity. We were going to connect people by where they live. So now when people called the church, they would say, hey, I'd like to get connected. I would say, where do you live? And they'd say, one, at first it's kind of freaky, like, why are you asking where I live? Like, what are you going to do? And you come knock on my door? No, we just want to know where you live. And so they'd say, okay, I live in Arlington Heights. And I'd say, oh, okay, great. Well, here's, I have some people that live in Arlington Heights that live right by you. They meet once a month. And we started a gathering, a once a month gathering, and where we just, it didn't matter what age they were, you know, male, female, couple, singles, whatever. We put them all together in one group and said, get along, all right? Let these people be your friends. And we expected but that out of that group, these other men's ministry, women's ministry, all that stuff would emerge, right? Okay. Well, it never really did. I mean, it kind of did, but it, but it really didn't. And we made a lot of mistakes along the way, okay? Well, now we're in a little midst of a leadership change at our church. And so now our leadership is saying, okay, this old world, pretty good. All right, it's a lot of good stuff in here. This new thing you were doing, some of it was really, really bad. Some of it's really good. So now you have to mesh these two together. And do it in a week. I mean, basically, we, that was about it. I'm having a meeting. We got told, I'm having a meeting this next week where all the old people in this structure who are mad at you because you took something away they like, I'm going to invite them to hang out after church and allow them to gripe about what you've done for the past three or four years. All right? And then you, me, we're going to have to call all these people that are mad and deal with it and get a new structure and figure it all out. Okay, so I'm freaking out. I'm thinking, okay, that's a little strange. Okay, so for me, though, how, how, what's my first initial response? Now, I'm a team building. That's my leadership style and, and motivational very highly, right? So my immediate response is all of these people in the past three years that made the change and, and did exactly what we told them to do, I thought, okay, we're going to now change stuff on them. I have to get these people in a room. Like, I have to rally my troops, I have to get them together, and I have to just pour into them. So as a motivational leader, my first reaction when I knew there was change coming and it was going to affect my people, my first reaction was I have to rally the troops and inject some energy in them because they're getting ready to get abused. They're getting ready to get beat up, and I can't take it. That's just, so that's, that's what, you know, you may get that same situation and handle it differently. Now, I'm also have a team building bent. So, boom, I do that, and then I get all my teams together, all my leadership teams together, and say, listen, here's what's going to happen. Boom, you guys are going to start getting a lot of questions. Here's what you need to say. If you get this, boom, I wanted to prepare my teams to do it. Now, I don't know what kind of, you know, style you have, so it may look differently, but when I got put with a major leadership challenge in, in my ministry, that's how I handled it. My first instinct was, literally, boom, get everybody together in a room. Get everybody together. Let him vent, let him go, and then I just, boom. I mean, I was like Vince Lombardi at halftime, just coaching him up. You know, that's how I handled a crazy leadership challenge, in, you know, in my life. And so, here's, you know, later you kind of think, like, just think back. Like, how do you, like, how, how would have you handled that? Like, when you have challenges come up, how do you handle it? Because, I mean, if, to really reach your leadership potential, you've got to figure out, how do I handle these situations? Am I just kind of going off, you know? Just going off on things? No, you got to figure out. Like, why, why, is it, why do I do what I do? What is my style? What am I really good at? Like, I'm, I'm, I think 
that's my style, and I need to do that. I need to get people in a room and boom, get them fired up. You know, and so I had to get people together. So for you, think about it. You know, what kind of style you are? How would you handle challenges? Think about that. So in order to identify, we're going to close up here. Um, use resources like we just have. Use those. Figure them out. Do that. The second thing we need to do is we need to use people around you. Use people around you. And here's what I mean by that is, is one, we need to be truth tellers ourselves, and we need to surround ourselves with truth tellers. And, and, you know, here's what I mean. In, in, in the church world, I think it's, it's just very easy for us to give fruit, fruitless compliments and we just compliment everybody on everything. Oh, man, that was great, special. That was so good. Great job. Oh, man, you did a great job that small group. That was unbelievable. Oh, man, that was just, you did great on this. Oh, you were just unbelievable on that. And so what happens is my words become very, very meaningless because I compliment and I affirm everything. Because I'm a Christian. I'm supposed to encourage people. So I'm just going to affirm everything I see and encourage everything. What happens is my words become very, very meaningless. And my words become, there's no power to them because I affirm everything. And then when there really is a moment when I see someone in my ministry like display a great, you know, character, you know, of God or they really have this great leadership potential coming and I see them act on it or they have a spiritual gift and they use it and then I really want to like affirm that in them, my words lose my power because I've affirmed everything in them. And so then they think they have every spiritual gift that God, you know, has, and they really don't. And I, it just loses power. So what I'm saying is, yes, we need to encourage people, but more importantly, we need to be truth-tellers. Don't encourage people just to encourage them, because your words have no meaning and no power. And I made mine up a long time ago that I'm, I'm not just going to give out, you know, fruitless compliments. I'm not. Because I want to affirm people the right way and when they really need it. I want my words to mean something. You know, and, and what we gotta, we gotta surround ourselves with people like that. We gotta surround ourselves with truth tellers that will tell us, you know what? You're doing this, but you should be doing this because you're great at this. You're great at it. You're not so great at this. This, though, you knock out of the park, man. You're the best at it. Do it. We gotta have people that just tell us the truth. We gotta do that. And, and the last thing we need to do is we need to ruthlessly evaluate ourselves. We need to ruthlessly evaluate ourselves. We need to really just start asking ourselves questions like, what are the things that we are just really good at? And what is it? You know, what do you just intuitively do? Like, when you're faced with a challenge, what is just your first thought? Like, intuitively, boom, what do you do? Like, start to figure that stuff out. Um, there's a great, um, you know, the movie, Trades of Fire. I'm sure we've all heard of it. And there's a great line in that movie. And you know the story about the guy. What's his name? I can't even think of his name right now. The runner, anyone know? We're going to, excuse me? All right, I was going to call him Joe Smith, but we'll call him that. Okay, what did he just say? Entrepreneurial. I can't say that either. Um, but the, the runner in, in Trades of Fire, you know, true story, and he's going for, what is it? Eric Lydell, you the man. Um, he, he's running for the gold medal, and after he leaves the Olympics, right, he was going to go on the mission field, and his sister was very scared that if he won the gold medal, he wouldn't fulfill what he said he was going to fulfill. She was afraid that if he won the gold medal that he would kind of, you know, get this, this head, big head and, and all this fame and glory and he, and he wouldn't go on and do what he said he was going to do. And, and she's like begging him, don't run. Like, just, just, just don't do it. Don't run. I'm afraid you're not, you're not going to fulfill, you know, your destiny, what you're supposed to. And this is what he says. 
He says, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. So my question for you is, what do you do that when you do it, you feel God's pleasure? What is the one thing that you do, and when you do it, you just feel God smiling down on you? When you figure that out, do it. Don't stop. Never stop doing it. That's the thing you need to do. That's the thing you need to wrestle with. What is the thing that you do that makes God smile? Because you're using the gifts that he gave you. When you figure that kind of stuff out, you can't help but reach your potential. It's going to naturally happen. It's going to happen. Let me pray for us. Father, we love you, and uh, we just thank you so much for how you made us. And you just uniquely made everyone in this room just a little bit different. And we all have just gifts that you've given us, and you want us to use those gifts. And you've developed us in, in, in a certain way that we maybe all lead a little